Hey there, and welcome to the review of the Stargate franchise. In these podcast episodes, we'll be reviewing from the perspective of me, Layla, an avid fan of all things entertainment, and shall we say diverse perspective? For I identify as a cisgender queer woman with a physical disability who is also a licensed cognitive behavioral addiction and developmental psychologist who herself has complex PTSD, and also I'm an astrologer novice to boot. For I do believe it is all connected. To then also be born into a dysfunctional family unit, you can imagine it's been a life filled with some quite transformative experiences. What better way to utilize this unique combination of strengths to share them with the world? And that is the goal of this whole enterprise, sharing and caring. Currently, the episodes are still just reviewed by me, myself, and I. I, for one, am madly interested in what all y'all think about the following. So, as I believe the arts are humanity's greatest gift, for it allows us to experience and tap into the realm of infinite possibilities, let's get started. Today's episode, we'll be reviewing episode Fire and Water. The original air date was October 17th, 1997. The story was written by Brett Wright and Catherine Powers. The teleplay was written by Catherine Powers. And it was directed by Alan Eastman. And this apparently is the only episode that he ever directed, Stargate SG-1. Which is a shame, because he had some primo shots in this episode. Also, a little fun fact, this episode was originally named Funeral for a Friend. But I'm guessing that was a little too much on the nose. As I already previously disclosed in our Bloodlines episode, in this episode, we find out that Daniel died? Or did he? Either way, there will be a funeral for that friend. So, like I said, I think that's why they chose a different name, because this was just too obvious. Prosper, always. The episode starts off with the MGM lion roaring. This time the episode starts off with Sergeant Harriman that isn't going to be called Sergeant or Harriman or anything, I think, for many seasons to come, but in the end they call him Sergeant Harriman, so I'm going to call him Sergeant Harriman and General Hammond, discussing something or other about a mission of something or other, when there is an unscheduled off-world activation. And is this the only time that Sergeant Harriman says through the microphone, report to the Stargate room? Somehow that just doesn't ring the same as gate room or embarkation room. So I'm glad that they discontinued that one. Also, what if someone somewhere in that entire Cheyenne Mountain complex is on the phone with someone who doesn't have clearance and they overhear this Stargate room and then ask what be a Stargate? This is totally an irrelevant tangent. Anywho, the whole sequence of events just, it, it's the first season, it doesn't make sense. Anywho, they get the iris code, it's SG-1, they weren't due for a long time, so they immediately know that something must be up, that they dialed home ahead of schedule. And next we see a soaked O'Neill, Carter, and Tilk returning from their mission. And one glaringly obvious missing person here is Dr. Daniel Jackson. They are wearing their desert cameo, but they are soaked. So either they were not dressed for the party or something happened? Dr. Fraser soon determines that they're all in shock and wants to take them to the infirmary after which every single person, Tilk, Carter, O'Neill, disclosed that Daniel isn't with them because he's dead. After which we get the introduction song, which kind of gives the viewer a minute or two to let that news sink in because I know I said his presence was apparently not as necessary as it has been declared for the military to get the gate to work because apparently 40, 50 years before Ernest Littlefield also learned all that information about the gate and the point of origin and all that jazz and it got it to work. But come on people, we love him. We want to keep him. 
And luckily, no spoiler, he's not dead. He's pulling a regular, well, technically, I wanted to say he's pulling a regular Winchester, and if you know, you know. But then again, this was pre-supernatural. <laughs> so maybe the Winchester stole it from Daniel? Who knows? And these first few times, because, again, spoiler, this won't be the last. And this is officially the second time that Daniel is presumed dead, when he's not actually dead. But he runs quite a tally throughout the show. Not a Winchester tally, especially not a Dean Winchester tally, but it's up there. During their physical examinations, all the team members are shown to be in shock after witnessing and or experiencing a trauma. They all seem to have a very clear, distinct memory of seeing slash hearing Daniel call out to them. And yeah, I can imagine that that's traumatizing to see your friend die horribly, unable to get to them, and in the meantime, hearing them call out for help. So yeah, traumatizing be understatement here. And I gotta say, in this episode, unlike the usually receptive, empathetic, and caring General Hammond, he now wants the team out and back at it as soon as they find a replacement for Daniel. Dude, really? Give them a second to process, would you? To grieve? And we see Dr. Fraser having to really work hard to convince the general to let them stand down, and Hammond finally lets up and allows for seven, seven days. Lordy. Not a word is spoken on counseling or anything to help them deal with this traumatic loss. It is just debrief and physical examination. I do appreciate that Dr. Fraser tries to call attention to this, but General Hammond basically just belittles it, saying, when you work so close together with, with lives depending on each other, these sorts of experiences are just part of the package. And, I mean, even in the 90s, y'all knew about shell shock. I know the trauma in the last decade has become really a hot topic, and then we all basically learned that, hmm, we're all traumatized, more or less. So, maybe we should get on that, as I'm currently doing. But... That was an unexpected stance for General Hammond to take, considering his earlier performances of being a very empathetic, conscientious general. This all really clearly shows that at that time, in the late 90s, little to no consideration was given to trauma and traumatic experiences, counseling, therapy, treatment. You were just supposed to suck it up and keep going because it was part of the job. And if you couldn't, you would appear weak and were deemed qualified enough for the job, or not qualified anymore for the job. And as a therapist myself, with complex PTSD, I can tell you we're all humans, and we all got our shit to work through. Because the worst thing that's happened to you is still the worst thing that's happened to you. Maybe it pales, you should never compare, but it pales in comparison to what other people might have experienced, but that does not take away that the worst thing that's happened to you is still the worst thing that has happened to you. And if that does not get addressed in time, it shows up in your life in more and more different dysfunctional ways. I mean, I myself started to notice in trying to show someone else how they could heal from their hurts, I started to become triggered by the things that clients told me as it kept awakening my own unresolved, unhealed trauma. Though I don't think, or at least I very much hope, that my clients weren't aware of how I got triggered during certain sessions. 
The thing that clued me in was a client that was in multiple toxic relationships, both with family members and their partner. And she kept saying, but they mean well, but they mean well. And as I was trying to show her that, well-intentioned or not, if the impact is hurtful to you, they should take responsibility and change it. It kept reawakening my own unhealed trauma from my own past. And it was in the middle of the COVID pandemic where I was already being triggered left, right, and center. And I think by that time, I just could no longer deny my own unresolved, unhealed trauma any longer. And I decided to seek help because hurt people can hurt people. And I take my responsibility as a therapist very seriously. And we especially, I think, cannot allow our biases or unresolved issues be carried into our work because we carry that into a session with our clients. And a lot, a lot of damage can be done if you are not aware of your own triggers and trauma and biases. And we don't have to take a Hippocratic oath as physicians have to do. I asked about this once. <laughs> Apparently we have an ethical code, but it's a suggestion. It's not a declaration or an oath or just, you know. I have notes on that one because I think, no, I know. I have seen therapists say things that were very damaging in clients showed me that words have power and especially unfortunately many see their therapist as this all-knowing or at least smarter than you are person and i mean they are educated it is their profession but they are still human you don't have to just agree and accept every single thing that they say i mean it's our job to make you think and decide for yourself basically Anywho, um, my point was that I think we too should have an ethical, make an oath declaration, something or other of first do no harm. And I've seen, I've lived, I've experienced how important it is to take responsibility for your words, however well-intentioned. If it just does not line up with how the impact is on the other person, it is on the person who said it to take responsibility for their words and actions and apologize instead of becoming defensive and putting the blame squarely on the recipient. Because you cannot, cannot tell someone else that what they are feeling is wrong. That happens so often, or at least in my experience, that has happened a lot. And that is what you're doing when you get defensive after someone calls you out on something you said. Because what you're basically telling them is, I did not mean to upset you, I did not mean to make you angry, so the fact that you are upset or the fact that you are angry means that there is something wrong with you, and that is not my fault. All this means is that people aren't communicating at the same frequency, and it is no one's fault. Just in communication, both parties are responsible for their words and their actions, and if the intent does not match up with the impact, it requires you to put in some additional effort to reconnect. Because apparently some wires got tangled up, crossed, static on the line, oh, I could go on. There are so many figure of speeches for this one. I love them, and you know I do. You know, from personal experience, when you tell someone, oh, but I or they mean well, they're basically telling you, let it go, move on, shut up something I was told quite a lot as a child. And it squarely puts the blame on the recipient, leaving the sender free and clear to move on as if nothing untoward just transpired and you aren't, as the recipient, left feeling hurt and or dismissed. In the worst case, it can even make you feel that there's something wrong with you. And this allows these people to avoid self-reflecting, avoid taking responsibility for their own actions, and they apparently, usually, unfortunately, in my experience, seem dandy to just walk away after having hurt you, leaving you holding the steaming, hurtful, 
bag of shit with a side order of shame and blame because apparently you were the one that was wrong in this equation. And to me, worst of all is that this moment, this chance to truly reconnect with each other where intent does match impact is lost. For when you become defensive, you shut someone else down. You dismiss their feelings, you become close-minded, and you're unable to exercise curiosity, to truly listen, to empathize, to try and understand where the other person is coming from. And it causes the lines of communications to get cut, which in my eyes makes everyone lose. Though, admittedly, some more than others. And from personal and professional experience, like I said, if you are more often than not the person left holding that bag of shit, that steady stream of shit getting dumped on us affects our self-image, affects our self-worth, and it clears the way for more and more people to abuse us in similar and in creative ways, chipping away at our self-esteem, at our self-worth, until there's not much left. And then people go about and say, well, if they were abusive, why didn't you leave? Because by then... You believe that you deserve it, you can't survive without them. Then no one else will want you, for you are clearly an unlovable, unredeemable sack of shit. Or at least that was my experience. Anyone else similar? Different? Either way, what you should also hopefully take away from this is that you can heal from that at whatever age. I mean, I'm now 37 and I've lived a lifetime of that kind of messaging and it has done a real number on me, I can tell you. But also, like as a therapist myself, knowing how it works, what works, now being the client, it's not easy. In fact, it's now been two weeks since I started my intense therapy to start healing from that, becoming more and more aware of how much my traumas, my dysfunctional patterns that resulted from that have limited me as a person, as a woman, as a friend. But also know that once you become aware of it and people help you work through it, you can finally break those chains and be free, free from the trauma, free from the pain, learn to truly, fully accept and love yourself and then you can finally start living for i realized i pretty much the vast 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 majority of my life i spent in survival mode and you miss out on life when you're in survival mode you don't enjoy life and that is such a waste because especially now with the whole astrology of it all we all come here with our own personal gifts and purpose and lessons yes throughout the years hearing other people's stories and the impact that that had on me. I am also now here sharing my story and my story from the different perspectives that I've gained in my life, hopefully in any way, shape or form, being able to help someone else reawaken a fire in them that they maybe thought was long gone. These past few years, I finally started to realize that I am so much more powerful and strong and worthy than my family has ever made me feel. So it's never too late to change. It's never too late to choose you and to start healing from it. And, you know, it's been only two weeks, but already we have learned a lot about each other's lives shared a lot about it and I can tell you so so many people have experienced so much trauma and hurt that for so long was deemed part of the job or normalized to the point well it is what it is just shut up and move on that sooner or later and especially now when we're becoming more and more aware of it of the impact on the long-term impacts not only on ourselves but on every single relationship that we have be it with family friends our own children trauma gets passed on so fucking easily and it doesn't have to you can make the choice to have the hurt unresolved trauma the unhealed trauma the dysfunctional patterns stop with you 
I mean, everything that Israel is now doing is a sign of people who were greatly hurt in the past. Yes, but clearly you learned nothing from it. Because if you don't learn from your own hurts or the intergenerational trauma that was passed down to you, you become the thing that hurt you. And that is what they're doing now to the Palestinians. They are, it's a fucking genocide. And the fact that the vast, vast majority of the world is just letting this happen and that so many of our leadership, because a lot of the population is very much against this, but that our leaderships for some odd fucking reason, make it make sense, is supporting Israel through this. I already told you about, you know, Pluto and Aquarius and, and all the conjunctions that are happening now and Uranus being the ruler of Aquarius, including Saturn, but in the new modern astrology, Uranus, and that Uranus is the rebel, the revolutionary planet, and Pluto is the unearthing of secrets and transforming, destructing. It's a destructing force, but with the intent to unearth the hidden to create bigger and better. But all these in energies now are in the air. And you can tell it by happening such as that. For me personally, it was that I could no longer deny my own hurts because it had already affected many areas of my life that I was able to ignore as I did to become a therapist and to start working as a therapist. But as I was other people heal, I had to acknowledge that I myself had still a lot of unhealed hurts that were limiting me in living in any way, shape, or form a life worthy living. I was surviving. And for who? I always thought that when I help others, I am worthy. But no, I need to flip that script. I am worthy. And with what I have to offer, I can help others. Helping others does not make you worthy. All of those things, just people are gonna be exposed and the people are rising up and saying enough is enough. We had the Me Too movement that started a whole chain of events that is still going on and hopefully going strong because there's still a lot in that area that, that still needs to change. But now is the time for all of us to shine a light in every dark corner that we've ever had and to grab about the balls and squeeze and then, you know, give it a kiss and make it better. That is a very bad analogy. I'm so very sorry. I don't know where that came from. Back to the episode. They hold a ceremony with military personnel, as if Daniel was a military officer. And as it turned out, fun fan fact, those are real military personnel personnel in this funeral procession thingamabob, which, cool. And, you know, with the whole folding of the flags and the speeches and all that jazz. For a second there, I was like, why are we holding a memorial for Daniel in Stargate Command with only Stargate personnel? But to the rest of the world, apart from Catherine and Ernest, Daniel was already presumed dead. So, yeah, SGC personnel makes sense. And oh, that trumpet always gets me. The trumpet at military funerals oof, always gives me feelings. And I was shockingly quite moved by O'Neill's speech, saying he was our voice, our conscience. A very courageous man. He was a friend. Oh, we knew how you secretly loved him. And to that, I don't want to make enemies, but I gotta say this because apparently this has become a real thing to the point that it has unleashed a shit ton of hate in a shit ton of directions. But no, I don't mean slashy love. Not every bromance needs to be, you know, an actual sexual romance. Men expressing affection for their male friends isn't automatically I want to tap that. And, you know, even if you do, blessings, be merry. Just in this case, no slashy. They are straight men. Nothing ever to the contrary is shown. And, you know, write all the fanfiction you want, but keep canon and fiction life, for lack of a better phrasing, straight. 
Where does that phrase actually come from? Sorry, brain fart train enrollment here. Can we change that? I mean, is it just me or does it empower heterosexuality, giving off a certain I am right vibe by saying, let me get this straight? Or does my brain alone do that with that phrase of keeping it straight? I mean, I can imagine it wasn't meant to refer to sexual orientation, but alas, it has become synonymous. For in the 40s, 50s, 60s, they used the word gay, but I don't think it's being used unless you're like 75 years or older to still mean joyful. It has become too synonymous to homosexuality, causing people to stop using the word altogether to also mean joyful and, you know. And I think might be an assumption, and we all know what happens when you assume, yes, I know, but I'm assuming that that is a result of people stopped using that word because they thought that if you said that word and you meant joyful and not homosexual, you were somehow still showing your support or expressing your support for that gay lifestyle, which isn't a lifestyle. But if someone knows this, please do share, because somewhere in my brain, I've always wondered. Here we go off topic. Again, apologies. Back to the episode. And here, kudos to the writer or the director, I don't know, but what a scene transition, people. When Hammond says, may he rest in peace, we go over to a scene with Daniel, and first of all, hey, Daniel's not dead, yay, but he looks lost and slightly worried, so no resting in peace there. Before we learn anything more about what's happening or what happened to Daniel, we go back to Earth to his wake that O'Neill is holding for Daniel at his own house. We see Tilk and Carter arrive, and I gotta love that they give Tilk a straw hat to cover up his emblem, but it's clearly all SGC personnel for O'Neill is regaling some woman with their visit to Abydos, telling her about that passionate kiss between Daniel and Sharae, and um, isn't that all classified? Or I'd imagine, right? So, okay. Like that he wore one outside so that people in the neighborhood didn't see, I get it, but inside he could have taken it off, but he never takes the hat off. Hm. To underline how alien Tilk is, he says that he doesn't understand the whole wake idea, and that apparently in Jaffa land it is customary to not eat for three days and three nights. Yowza. But then again, I guess the gold symbiote can hold you over for a bit. As O'Neill offers them a drink, we see his setup and sweet baby Jesus. That is a nice cocktail setup you got there, Tom Cruise. As O'Neill is pouring Carter a beer, the bubbles seem to trigger a flashback, and O'Neill sees Daniel engulfed screaming out for help. This keeps happening throughout the episode for O'Neill, for Carter, again and again and again. And I mean, I don't see no flames and why is it bubbles, but that apparently is the gist. We have to keep guessing. Bubbles, wet, fire, why, what, what happened? Finally, we go back to Daniel and we see him in a wet t-shirt and hello. You can say that Daniel may be a nerd, but he is a buff nerd. This made me think of that Supernatural post that you see where people on Tumblr apparently went from this is the nerd in my show and this is the nerd in my show. And I usually come across the Sam Winchester, this is our nerd in Supernatural. What was it? Season 5? He became a buff nerd. And that kind of made me think, now I want to make a post saying, well, and this is our nerd in Stargate. Is that just me? I wanted to screenshot that image of Daniel or Michael Shanks being over a t-shirt sexy buff and screenshot that. And this is our Stargate SG-1 nerd. But I don't have Tumblr. Is that post out there? If anyone knows where to find it, please do share. For I do believe it is an addition worth posting about. Come on, let me know that you're out there. Anywho. Side note, sorry. This was the first time that I kind of noticed it. Daniel Michael Shanks is actually quite buff. Nerd that he is. 
It appears that Daniel was held back by the creature on the planet, and as he tries to introduce himself, as he always does, the creature just reveals cuneiform writing. And fun fan fact, I did not know this until I researched for this episode. The actor that plays this creature, Nem, is Gerard Plunkett, who has previously played Counselor Tuplo, the dude in the booby crappy toppy thingamabob in the episode The Broker Divide. And if you listen, you can hear it in their speech pattern. I think I posted an image of him with the wicked ass crown and the booby crappy top, which kudos and respect for wearing that one, because I don't think that would be flattering on many. But you pulled it off, truly, you did. Apparently, the, the text says, reveal fate Amarok. And why? I don't know. I should check this. I don't think he ever won an award for his performance, but throughout this show, just Michael Shanks, you are, I don't want to say an underrated actor. Because I, for show, don't underrate your performance whatsoever, and I know that there are many with me. But you are not heralded as you should be, my friend. I do believe that. You are such a powerful, good actor. And we got a little sneak peeky in this episode of how good an actor you are. And I gotta give props to our director here on the beautiful shots of just the, the, the lighting and the, the camera framing and your blue-blue eyes and just your constant wetness. Love it. I'm really horning on Daniel this episode. Sorry. Not sorry. A little sorry. I mean, credit where credit's due, right? He looks good. After his presumed flashback, we see O'Neill outside of his house, the hockey stick. And ends up smashing a car window, which turns out to be Hammond's car window. Oopsie-daisy. O'Neill tells Hammond he is again thinking about retiring, but Hammond now gives him an assignment. Clearly states that it's not an order, but a request. And that is to clear out Daniel's apartment. Oh yeah, that's what you want to be doing when you're already clearly grieving for your friend. But I guess, yeah. He is indeed the only somewhat family member Daniel still had left. So it does, in a way, make sense in addition to the confidentiality of Daniel being a star Stargate Command employee. And I do really appreciate love Stargate magic that when they walk back inside, Hammond tells him, you know that was my car, right? And O'Neill just responds with, you should get that window fixed. As in, they make a funny out of it and clearly Hammond is not mad. But at the same time, I'm like, behaviorally, it's not okay that he doesn't acknowledge that he is the one that broke it and that he at least should, you know, make an apology. He is your superior officer after all. But overall, this scene, the levity in it, despite the very heavy process of trying to grieve a friend and feeling probably again responsible and some would say it's a lot more intense than what we saw him portray after losing his son but then again we don't know how long his son had been dead when the movie was made and we also see a very seasoned soldier Tilk being truly affected by this happening and Carter and you could say that that is really truly a conditioned response due to their implanted memory. So for me, that would actually kind of sort of be a valid reason for their grief to be so visceral. The team is now packing up Daniel's home, and I love the artifacts in his house, or merchandise, or whatever you want to call it. And that they're starting to read his diary? I mean, that's going to be wicked awkward when it turns out that he's not dead. But still, when someone dies, really? I mean, maybe after a few years, but after someone has just died and someone's diary, I don't know. But I do love, though kind of wonder why they so adamantly emphasize how Daniel felt about O'Neill. And this is after O'Neill gave that very moving speech during Daniel's memorial service. So the bromance is emphasized in this episode. 
Back on the planet, Daniel learns that the creature Nem convinced his team that he is dead, so holding out for rescue is no longer a strategy that he should employ. He learns that Amaroka was Nem's mate, and that she was on Earth in Babylonian times. Daniel throws a little temper tantrum, which is adorable, as it was just one move shy of a full-on temper tantrum circle dance, or whatever you want to call that. But that doesn't take away of the bonding moment that happens when Daniel tells Nem that he too lost his mate to the gold. And this is the part where my psychologist brain goes, I have so many notes. But it's TV, it's the 90s, let's move on. As Dr. Janet Frazier tells them that they all have serious levels of serotonin in accordance with their depressive feelings, which would be understandable, you know, losing a friend right in front of your eyes, feeling powerless to help, y'all. Yeah, you would feel a little down about that. And then she goes on mentioning a small spot on all of their MRIs, and honey, that ain't small. And plus, a memory would not be in the exact same spot in people's brains because all of our brain maps are unique. Like, a general area, maybe? But the spot that she indicates like it would have had involved the amygdala the hippocampus not just a random spot on your brain it wasn't the general area you could say but she refers i think it to the cortex just no i have so many notes but that's beside the point as before she even can go any further about that blob on the mri the gate activates and suddenly this is like a pavlov effect to o'neill carter and tilk as they run towards the gate and for a second we do see daniel coming down the ramp in his standard green su1 gear only to morph into a dude that looked nothing like michael shanks i mean for one the dude is bald has no glasses, and damn, that scowl! That is not a happy camper. Again, all of these things are to make the doctor, the general, the viewer, aware that something is clearly up and wrong about their flashbacks, about that they all had this Pavlovian response to the gate dialing, and as they discuss that they believe that Daniel is alive, but also know that he is dead, this discrepancy seems to cause a dissonance and they decide to go back to the planet. But as soon as they try to utter the words, O'Neill gets a serious stab in the brain. And yeah, if you want to talk Pavlovian, this is clearly conditioned behavior. And for some of you who might already know about Pavlov and the drooling dog, a Pavlonian response is what we refer to as pretty much conditioned behavior, as in we can condition certain behavior as in it becomes a habit. And the most famous response is that of Pavlov's experiment with the dog and the bell and the drooling. And if someone wants me to explain all of that, I can. If you want to, I will. Just drop a comment and I will post about it. But yeah, for now, it's enough to know that this is clearly a conditioned response and one that he does not seem to have chosen for himself. Next, we get a little history lesson, as Daniel learns that Amaroka tried to save the humans from the Gold, and shares that she may have helped by planting the seed that led to the uprising in the 2000-something BC. And for the fans that know where this show is going, are you feeling it too? Because knowing where this show is going... Oh, Daniel, if only you knew. Which we will do in time. For the ones who are watching the show for the first time and are listening to my podcast episodes concurrently, have no idea what I'm talking about for that. Stay tuned. We will get there eventually. But yeah, once you've seen that episode, I will probably refer back to this one again and tell you like you should watch that episode back and then see how why that lends a certain way. Just, you know, FYI. <laughs> 
It seems that Nem believed humans were conquered by the Go'olds because, as per usual, Tilk. People often draw the wrong conclusions with Tilk's presence on the team, and Daniel tries to continue to convince Nem to come back with him to Earth, but nope, he still continues to claim that Daniel has the knowledge right there in his brain. And we're not emphasizing enough, in my opinion, that this creature apparently is over 4,000 years old. Like, genuinely. Somewhere later in the episode, it does come up a little, but that dude is over 4,000 years old. Maybe even 5,000, who knows, but old. Daniel made a whole thingy about it with the Nox, and that was only, what, 305 or something? And then with Braytech, 120, we made a big-ass deal about that, but apparently when you're a few millennia old, the effect of that wavers a bit, although he is being held hostage, so, you know, freak out about that later, which, knowing Daniel, he probably will. But I noticed it, that it wasn't being made a thing, or in my opinion, not enough of a thing. Next, again, a Stargate magical moment where back on Earth they are trying to zen the team out with ocean sounds and try to coax the memory, the real memory, out of the team to see what happened on the planet and what happened to Daniel. And Carter and O'Neill seem to be impervious, but oh, look at Tilk, he is in the zone. I really like that part. Again, that's just, it's a very heavy episode, but those little moments alleviate it and make it funny again. As they are all still vehemently claiming that they are sure that Daniel's dead, but also sure that he is not dead, they are now being taken off of active duty. See, they're being called no longer fit for duty because they are traumatized and can't seem to get their story straight. And, I mean, granted, you can't be dead and not dead at the same time, although it's the whole Schrodinger cat thingamabob, right? Which, again, is a psychological construct. It's a, it's a thought experiment for the ones who are interested in that. I will post that link to that beautifully, lovely, drawn explanation of the Schrodinger's cat thought experiment on YouTube. I will add that link into my link tree. And yes, I do expand on this one because this kitty cat is going to come up again in a later episode. I think in two, three episodes? In the Enigma episode, this little kitty cat makes a reappearance. So I thought I might as well educate you while we were at it. Live and learn is our motto after all. Well, one of our mottos. We have many. Maybe another one that is quite similarly making the same inference and that we in the psychological realm heard a lot again, I think it was by John Locke, about a tree falling in the woods doesn't make a sound. Which I then think is kind of dumbed down even further, or that's just related to does a bear shit in the woods. Pretty much dumbing it down until it becomes a rhetorical question, pretty much. Or am I not missing the point? To me, it feels that way anyway. But does a tree falling in the woods make a sound? Again, infers how you rationalize your answer to that. It says a lot about how you think about things. Me personally, I would say yes, it makes a sound. But some people would argue if there's no one there to perceive or hear it, does it then still make a sound? And that's where we can go off on a tangent for decades to come, which is apparently how long they have been arguing this quantum mechanical thingamabob. So, if you have thoughts on this, please do share. All thoughts are welcome. Daniel, sensing that he is pretty much locked in here for life, comes up with a thought-provoking, to continue on that note, idea of using the device that Nem used to give the team the memory of his death can possibly, maybe, also be used to help him find that deeply buried memory. 
Nem tries to warn him that it could damage and possibly kill Daniel, but right now he is willing to take that risk. For he says it is better to risk it than be sure that he will never see his friends or his wife again. And you gotta love the fact that the dude still, one, carries a torch for his lady, but also that he still clearly, strongly believes that he will see Sharae again. And I don't know why, but this love story has always resonated with me and hit me right in the feels. I've always rooted for them and just, yeah. Which is probably why I loved it so much when I heard that they actually got together outside of the show and that they had a baby, which is also... Nope, not saying it. I always love it when TV shows bring people together and they make babies. I mean, today, I, well, I already knew, but today it got confirmed that the baby of two of the supernatural actors who met on the show and then had a baby was born. And that is like the third of the couple that met on the show and had babies. That show has, has seriously spawned some children. Another reason why, why you just gotta love that show. And yes, why I also love this show for that. Not particularly just for that, but those are those kind of little magical... I think that's it. I think I love that because it means that this show on so many different levels was so meaningful for so many different people in so many different ways. Like this show is directly responsible for them meeting, for them falling in love, for them having a baby, creating life. I mean, that's powerful stuff, people. Knowing that you're directly responsible for people hooking up, finding love, making babies, creating a legacy. That's a good legacy to have, right? I mean, I think it's gonna be an anecdote for the rest of my life of my friend that I was there when she met her boo, her baby daddy. And another friend of mine the other day said that I was the only friend that she told where she was going when she went on a date with her now husband. So I was there for a lot of firsts, apparently. Can someone please be there for mine? Like, I'm still searching and waiting and, and like, where the fuck are you? So if anyone is a very good matchmaker, hook a girl up, would you? But as I've learned today... <laughs> I have a lot of different karmic relationship indicators in my chart, so I am... Well, it's not that I'm not easy, it's just that my relationships are karmic, and thus oftentimes intense. Well, there is a setting in my chart that says that once you've been with me, you will remember me forever, for good or bad. <laughs> so, that's also a, a sort of karma, you could say. Being with me is transformative, let's go with that. And considering my history, yeah. Negatively, so far, mainly for me. I'm working on it, though, to flip the script and finally make it memorably good for me. Apparently the cliche was true. You need to first learn to love yourself and learn to set boundaries. Shit. Two of the things I'm not very good at. But I'm working on it. I'm getting better at it. So, you know, live and learn. Live and learn. Back on Earth, the team is now going to start hypnosis, which gets seriously marked. O'Neill and Tilk says that it won't work on him. How would you know? You're very good at meditating and apparently the ocean music worked wonders, but okay, fine. Again, now we see the condition response coming from Carter and Tilk of no, we should not go back to the planet. And Carter eventually volunteers to undergo hypnosis to get to the truth of what happened to Daniel and to get beyond that conditioned response because she's not a scared little sissy like O'Neill. And lo and behold, it works. And we start to see what happened leading up to Daniel's capture and their implanted memory thinking that he died. We see that Nem greeted them, as far as you can call it greeting, at the shore of Jericho Beach. As it turns out, it's where they filmed this scene. Lovely. He walked up to Tilk, sensed his gold and starts to write in the sand. Daniel recognizes it for cuneiform. Is how he learned that Daniel even spoke that language and held the knowledge that he sought and that he could possibly answer the question of what fate on Maroka. He then blasted them, took them, implanted the memory in his creepy-ass lab, and we see Carter remember that they left Daniel. 
room, which then she gets a very nice hug from O'Neill, which was very warm yet again. See, now this is, if you ask me, canon, which they keep dangling. But okay, <clears throat> side note and spoiler and moving on. We now, and I had to make a post about this because so many thoughts yet again. We now see Daniel tied down in this torture chair to get at his memory. And I mean, Sigmund Freud would have loved to get his hands on this fucker and with him many I do believe because you can implant memories you can dig up memories you're tied down so the kinky little fuckers among us would also love that one I mean just the other day I watched okay this is a little side tangent but it's 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 a goodie so I want to share and it loosely relates to this <laughs> it's too good not to share it had me laughing for two days it still makes me laugh like the cinema therapy the youtube show about a family therapist a relationship therapist and a movie and tv show after two dudes they're funny they're lovely they have this the youtube channel called cinema therapy very educational should give them a follow they're very good and funny they're kind of doing what i'm doing only as a youtube video and i do think like at a certain point i was like what do i have to add well one i'm a woman two i have a disability and three well they are quite considerate and inclusive so that part they really do do but there are some videos where i'm like i i would add something on that so here i am and you're welcome i think i hope i don't know I mean, at the very least, my episodes are allowed to be explicit. Theirs aren't, as they so delightfully shared after they reviewed all four of the Twilight movies. Yeah, it's funny, you should watch it. And they said that they would love, sort of, to also review the spin-off, as you could call it, the Fifty Shades of Grey franchise. And they said that they couldn't because it's explicit. And I was like, okay, you did this one, maybe I should do that one, but I really hate those movies. But maybe one day, <laughs> because they're there's a lot to be said about those movies, like honestly, honestly, just boy. And I mean, all the thing that in relation to what I just said, the thing that bugs me most about that is that it tried to normalize BDSM, which I support, but in a way that is very toxic and thus it normalized the toxic narrative that is attached to BDSM, which is very wrong because if you would actually look into it, BDSM would make for the most most healthy and I think anyone not in the BDSM culture could learn a lot from this because if anyone works with consent and boundaries and respecting those, it is the BDSM community. Like honestly, genuinely, like so many people should learn a lot from that. But the movies, the books give it a very bad name in my opinion because it's a very toxic relationship and it perpetuates the narrative and unfortunately the reality that a lot of people that are into BDSM and do not have healthy boundaries, coping, use it quite manipulatively, resulting in abusive relationships. I think we can all assume as she made a song about S&M, the relationship that Rihanna had with Chris Brown, I think that in that they were both a little bit into the, at least the SM, maybe not the BDSM, but the SM part of it. And because he did not have proper healed, healthy coping strategies, he did not know how to turn that off outside of the bedroom and thus became an abusive partner. At least that's what I'm assuming. And yes, again, I know what happened in this situation. I'm sad to say. And unfortunately, I think that is why BDSM has gotten a bad rep but how you talk about things how you literally can really express anything and everything in and around and outside of the bedroom and knowing trusting that even if you are in a very vulnerable submissive position when you say your safe word that person will immediately stop thus making it safe to do 
so I, like I, again i can't repeat that enough and maybe a little the lady doth protest too much but i mean i'm what i just said before with my whole karmic relationship toxic abound experiences i'm trying to learn from that one honestly i'm the person that tries to learn from that to openly discuss your wants desires but also your limits your hard limits your soft limits your fantasies that you are maybe a little uncomfortable or or shy about but honey just crack it all open talk about it it can only truly it can only help you and improve your sex life to be honest so go tip for now <laughs> moving on quote that got this whole ramble going the dude said i am not into bdsm i'm into dsm five and that is such a psychologist joke but it made me giggle and and it's it still makes me laugh and i would follow that up on why not both but that's just you know <clears throat> yep moving on that chair yes <laughs> Nem is increasingly frying Daniel's brain. No, stop, please. We love him. We love his brain. So luckily, before he actually completely fries Daniel's brain, we learn that Bellas, a gold shocker, killed Amaroka. And I mean, it's been 4,000 years. Either that or the girl sure knows how to hide. But then again, we also got Nessie floating around somewhere, somehow, still, sorta, right? I mean, I think as humans, we're bound to be cocky and arrogant and think that we know a lot. And I think, no, we don't. So I, I think it's possible. But also, like, seriously, you don't think they could have found it by now in a freaking lake? But at the same time, never say never. But that's just me. Oh, you can tell I can't. I don't really love this episode. I don't. Really, I don't hate it. But the more I ramble, the more you know that I don't really particularly like this episode. Other than you know the beautiful shots and with t-shirt sexy Daniel and you know the fabulous acting and the little funny bits in there. But yeah, this was not one of, not nearly one of my faves. Anyway. <sighs> They return to the planet, a very mean-faced, because Tilt does not like to be messed with. Lele. Uh, they meet Nem again, Daniel swimming out after him, yelling, don't shoot. Which I was kind of surprised they didn't, but okay. Granted, they should have, they still needed to ask him, what did you do with Daniel? But still, you know, they could have sedated him or shot him in the knee or whatever, I don't know. I'm very violent today as well. <laughs> Apparently. Oops, daisy. Might be the BDSM chair. Um, moving on. Daniel then says he gave him his answer and he is now indeed allowed to go home. They offer him their friendship, but he declines for now and I guess to say forever because we will never ever meet him again. Correct me if I'm wrong, but no, I don't think so. As he says goodbye, he wishes that Daniel too learns what fate Share. And that moment can give my heart a little twinge. And yeah, don't we all want to know what fate Share? Spoiler, we will learn her fate. Anywho, long story, they talk. O'Neill makes a funny about Daniel should tell them their story over sushi. And <laughs> those are those little Colonel O'Neill gems that I adore and love and appreciate and respect. And it's, you, you kind of taste that he's annoyed, but he's choosing to let it go and turning it into a funny. And I like the part that when Daniel says that he wants to go home, they kind of have to tell him, oh yeah, BT dubs, we cleaned out your apartment. It's gone. And, you know, silver lining, we had a lovely memorial service honoring you. And, you know, O'Neill said very nice things about you. And I like the fact that they repeatedly have Daniel like, O'Neill said, he said, he said nice things about me. That was funny. Yeah, he loves you, honey. Don't fret. That was an adorable, nice, fluffy way to end the episode. And end it did. Lordy. Next up, episode 14, named Hathor, after the Egyptian sex goddess. Yeah, that kind of gives you a little glimpse on on, <laughs> on what's to come. Again, not one of my faves, but she's a great actress. They did it well, overall. It just, it. I think in trying to solve the, or answering the, how do Jaffa's 
Jaffa. It kind of also made it a little messy, which they then later on in the show tried to give a completely different origin story or something. I don't know. Particularly, I like that one better. This one felt too wackadoodle. But if you choose to watch this episode as a sort of standalone, and I mean, again, first season, they were still trying to figure all of this shit out. Let's just see those first season episodes as mostly standalone. So when you do that, it's an okay episode. There's a lot of people in it. There's a lot of great acting in it. We learn a little bit more about the history of the Go'ul, the Jaffa. And like I said, it's about an Egyptian sex goddess. So you know it's going to be good. And don't get your knickers in a twist or drop your knickers to the flow. It's still PG-13, but still, it's it, it has merit on that level, I gotta say. <laughs> so please do tune in and see you on the next one. For additional reviews and content on a variety of subjects in addition to this franchise, come check out our podcast channel, as well as our Instagram account, Let's Review with Layla and You. For additional in-depth content, as well as provide us with a place for reciprocation where we can all share and exchange our ideas, thoughts, and whatever else we feel like sharing with the world. So come meet up with me, myself, and I, drop a comment, give us a follow, and come share what y'all think. And to truly make this the all-inclusive podcast we set it out to be, come visit us in the RSS community where all our episodes come with a transcript. We do hope to see you there.